um, we are looking at the topic of what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? And how does that work? And we've covered a number of different topics on that larger issue since the beginning of the year. But right now we're in the middle of looking at what we call encounters. These places in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we find an encounter between Jesus and another person, whether that's an extended conversation or whether that's some sort of a relationship or friendship that these folks had with Jesus. And we're asking the question, what can we learn from this encounter about what it's like for us to have a relationship with Jesus? And um, we're looking at six different encounters. We've talked about the woman at the well. Uh, last week we talked about Nicodemus. And today we're going to look at our third uh, person and their encounter with Jesus. Uh, this is one of my favorite people in scripture. I don't know, I've always loved this story. And I think that there's um, a tremendous truth or insight that we can gain by looking at his life and his encounter with Jesus that would have significance to us. Are you guys ready? So the person that we're going to look at today actually goes by two names. It's, it's a first century thing. He had a Hebrew name because he was Jewish. But he also took a Greek name, which was a common practice in that time because of a number of different scenarios. But we're going we're to look at a gentleman. His name is Matthew. Or in other accounts, his name is Levi. So this would be his Hebrew name and then his Greek name. And the story of Matthew is found in three of the four Gospels. We read about him in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 2, and Luke chapter 5. Now this is the interesting scenario of the Gospels, these four different accounts of the life of Jesus. They're just told from different perspectives and for different purposes. For instance, Matthew writes to a particular audience... Mark writes to a whole other audience, and Luke is trying to convince another audience of another important aspect of who Jesus was. And then John, John had a, a kind of a cosmopolitan appeal to what he was recording in his account. So one of the things you have to just embrace or understand when you study your Bible in relationship to the four Gospels is that they're the same accounts of the life of Jesus. They just cover different details as different individuals remembered different things that Jesus said or did. And this is Matthew's account of his first encounter with Jesus. Make sense? So we read this. Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. We're looking at Luke's account. He refers to him as Levi, but this is the Matthew that we're talking about today. And Levi or Matthew was sitting at the tax booth. Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up, he left everything, and he followed him. Now, that's either a wow, or maybe there's a little bit more to it. That might have unfolded over a long period of time as Jesus introduced himself to Matthew, started to get to know him, started to spend maybe some time interacting with him and learning about who Matthew was and what he was like, that Jesus would then eventually make the invitation of coming to follow him as one of his disciples. So it probably was a little bit longer than what that seems to suggest. We're just getting a short, succinct account of Jesus making the invitation to Matthew to come and be one of his disciples. And then we read this. Um, Matthew or Levi, 
he held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, at Matthew's house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees, the religious influencers of their day? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people who knew the Old Testament scriptures and particularly the Mosaic law and the details of that, the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, the sect of the Pharisees, complained to Jesus' disciples. And they asked this question, what are you doing? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This doesn't make sense to us. Why, why are you and why is your rabbi doing this? And Jesus evidently overhears this conversation and he answers the Pharisees. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come... I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. Did you get it? Okay, so we're going to pull it apart because there's a number of very important cultural details in this short account of Jesus' interaction with, with Matthew that are very important to understanding what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. So we're going to spend a few minutes here pulling this thing apart. The first thing that we learn about is that Matthew was a tax collector. Okay, let's talk about that. For as long as people have been paying taxes, people have hated paying taxes. True? All right, throughout all of history, doesn't matter what era, history, what, what part of the world you go to, there's always been this reluctance, this resistance, this this strong opposition to giving a percentage of your hard-earned income to the government. No one's ever liked that. Especially when, especially when that obligation to pay those taxes has been demanded by, let's say, a tyrant, where the people paying the taxes were never given the opportunity to have a say in the matter. They weren't given fair representation. They were just demanded that they have to pay taxes, that never sits well. Whenever the obligation to pay taxes has been done deceptively, laws passed without really telling the truth about what they entail, and suddenly you realize we have to pay a tax for that, and we certainly don't like taxes when they're excessive. We feel like they're an undue burden. They're, at, they're, at, they're requiring more of us than really what seems to be fair. We, we, we don't like all of that. Okay, let me get myself in trouble here. This is, this is not, this is fact, okay? I, I think we could all agree to this, regardless of what side of the aisle you might live on. For Americans, the U.S. government, they haven't always spent taxes wisely, true? <laughs> They haven't always been especially frugal about how they spend taxes. True? And there have been times and places where things that were supported by your hard-earned money are not necessarily things that you embrace or you admire that you condone. True? Okay, that, that, that's just, we all agree to that. 
Okay, now, now here's the troublesome part. And I'm saying, before you start throwing tomatoes, just let me make the point and then you'll get it. No, no one's ever liked paying taxes. And us Americans, we don't, we don't like it when we feel like we have to pay more than our fair share, right? Now imagine you paying taxes to China or to Russia. Could I have an usher to see this woman out? <laughs> Imagine paying your taxes to another country. How do you think that would sit with most Americans? That, that wouldn't sit well, would it? Well, tax collectors in the first century, they were collecting taxes, not for Israel, they were collecting taxes for Rome. You know, the opposition, the oppressor. You see, Israel lived in subservience to Rome. And Rome collected taxes from Israel to support what Rome was trying to do. I mean, just stop to think about it. The Jews were paying taxes to recruit to train and maintain an army that kept them in subjugation. Imagine how that felt. That was not a popular sort of situation to be in. Do you, do you get the feeling of that? Okay, so the Jews were paying taxes to Rome. And what Rome would do is they would hire Jews to collect the taxes. Now, they could send a Roman authority in there and, you know, power up and demand the taxes be paid. But Rome was, was trying to keep some sense of peace. And so what they would do is they would hire Jewish citizens to, tax, to, to collect taxes from Jewish citizens to pay Rome. You get it? And it was common knowledge that tax collectors they charged a lot of additional fees. They had a tax that they had to collect. Rome would give them the amount that they'd have to collect per person. And the tax collectors, they had the authority of Rome and they could just attach all sorts of administrative fees and service fees. I mean, do you ever read? Do you ever read your phone bill? You're just like, serious? What is all of this? Well, that's what Jewish tax collectors did on behalf of Rome. They would just charge all these additional taxes that the, the people didn't know was legit or not. And so they knew, they knew they were being cheated. They knew the tax collector was a thief. They knew that they were extortionist. They, they knew this about tax collectors. Then you add to that insult to injury. They're they're collecting taxes for Rome. They're cheating you out of your hard-earned money. And then you knew that the tax collector lived a very lavish, very wealthy lifestyle because he was taking money out of your pocket. He always lived in the nicest section of town. He always wore the nicest of clothes. He always had the best of the best because he was incredibly wealthy as the tax collector. 
add to that that every one of your neighbors considered you a traitor and what you have is a pretty toxic public relations problem. Did you get that? The short of it is people hated tax collectors. So people hated Matthew. He was considered a criminal, a traitor, a cheat, a thief. And so people disparaged tax collectors and people rejected tax collectors. They, they didn't let them run with them. So it's not like at the end of the day, Matthew could just sort of close up shop, go home to the street where he lived and hang out with all of his neighbors. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. So the only people that Matthew would have as friends were other tax collectors and other people that society rejected, prostitutes and criminals and other people with, with kind of sordid backgrounds and characters. That was the circle that Matthew ran in and Typically, the circle that you run in defines and, and influences who you are as a person. Does this help kind of paint a picture of who Matthew is in the story? So that's a little bit about tax collectors. Now, the Pharisees, when they show up to this banquet that Matthew is hosting for his friends to meet Jesus... They're very confused about why Jesus, who, who's claiming to be the Messiah, like come from God, hanging out with the types of Matthew. And so they use a phrase, why, why are you having dinner, which was a very intimate relational sort of encounter in that culture. Why, why are you having dinner with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this word sinners... This was a, in this, in this context, at this point in history, this was a very derogatory, discriminatory, discriminatory kind of term. It was highly charged. It, it was, it had a lot of firepower to it. You, you, you did not want to be called a sinner in that context. This included like prostitutes and criminals. This is the word they used to describe lepers People with leprosy that you didn't go anywhere near because they were unclean. Tax collectors were part of that. Now, you and I, we have words in our culture today that are very volatile. You have to be really careful when you use them or even if you use them at all. There's, there's a couple of words I can't even say. I'll get myself in all sorts of trouble. But, but we have words that carry carry a derogatory and discriminatory sort of edge to them. Words like rapist or pedophile, meth head, a terrorist, racist, fascist. Those are words in our language. That, man, you got to be really careful if, it, if you ever even use them. Do you get the sentiment of that? So that, that is what people were hearing and feeling when somebody talked about somebody else being a sinner. 
Now, you just have to know something about Jews of the first century. They, they were very fastidious. They were very clean. Um, they, they, they lived this idea of cleanliness is the next to godliness, okay? They, they really believed that. In fact, it was their, their kind of their spiritual belief that things or people could actually contaminate them morally, because their, their objective was to be clean before a holy, righteous God. And they, they thought that that was in like how they dressed and their, their kind of their daily practices. And, and so we see examples in the Gospels that when the Jews went to the market and if they had to do um, some sort of transaction with a Gentile, which they considered to be unclean, or they handled money that a Gentile had touched, we see that the Jews would go home and they'd go through this very elaborate cleansing process, washing themselves to do what? To get the Gentile off of them. That's how that felt. So, so they were very, very clean. And they thought that people could contaminate them. So that's how they looked at Matthew. He was unclean and they could, they could contaminate, he could contaminate them. And so they were just, their minds were blown that Jesus, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi who went around claiming to be God come to earth would have anything to do with the likes of Matthew. You get in the picture? You see, tax collectors and sinners... So, so this is bad enough, but they say tax collectors and sinners, which from what I can tell is they're just saying, man, you can talk about sinners, but tax collectors are in a whole other category. They're that much more repulsive. They're that much more morally unclean. They're just that much, ooh, tax collectors. It was, like, it was like somebody would say, I'd rather have a hundred friends who were sinners than, than have one acquaintance who was a tax collector. So later, when they asked the disciples, why, why are you and why is your rabbi hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus responds. He uses a pretty strong term. He uses a strong, I've come to help the sick. So what does he mean by that? Well, it's not sick as in cool, because that's how kids use it today. <laughs> Trying to keep up with my 22-year-old son. I was like, what does that mean? This was a couple years ago. That's cap. I'm like, what? what's cap? It's just not true. It's a lie. Why didn't you just say it's a lie? No, it's cap. Okay, so this is not sick as in they're cool. This is not sick as in gross. Jesus is using this term to describe somebody who is ill. Why? Because the way that Jesus sees us as human beings is that he understands the, the impact of sin on our hearts. It's like a disease, it's like a cancer that has contaminated our soul and eats at who we are. Jesus, I, I came to help people whose lives have been impacted by the devastating disease of sin in the life of a human heart. Because sin has left our hearts deceived and deceived. 
and corrupt and hardened. And Jesus said, I've come to help people like that. So this idea of Jesus hanging out with Matthew and the likes of Matthew was completely incongruent with how the Pharisees viewed what God would approve of. Does this make sense? So here's what the story's pointing out. Uh, the account, I say story because then that sounds like it's not true. Here's, here's what this encounter points out. One of the things it points out. You ready? Matthew is a sinner. And we are sinners. All of us. All of us, Romans tells us, all of us have sinned. All of us come up desperately short to God's righteous standard. We are sinners. Sin has corrupted our hearts and our minds. But then Jesus says one of the most profound lines in the entire account. Most of the time it gets ignored. Jesus ends with this. I have come to call sinners to repentance. The reason Jesus left heaven and came to this earth is to invite sinners to repentance. This is a very important statement. We might ask, well, what's repentance? Uh, easiest way to define it. Repentance is to change one's mind or to change direction, to turn around. Repentance is, I'm going this way. I believe these things. I live this way. I'm, I'm, I'm good with the direction I'm going, but then I come to a place of repentance and I realize, oh, I'm in the wrong direction. This direction is not healthy. This direction is not productive. This direction is eternally dangerous. So repentance is I turn around and I start going a different direction. Jesus said, I've come to help people who are ill I've come to call them to a repentance. Does that make sense? That's us. You know, whenever, whenever you're reading um, the Gospels, there's a couple of questions you should always ask yourself when, when you're reading the different accounts that we see in the Gospels. Um, ask yourself, you ready? Ask yourself, who am I in this story? Who am I in this story? And let's just, let's just all agree we're not Jesus. <laughs> now, it's possible that we could be like Jesus in that we might be doing things that we see Jesus doing. But in most encounters, the question that you need to, you need to ask is, is who am I in this story? And in this particular situation... You ask the question, who am I in the story? And the conclusion is, we're Matthew. Another great question to ask when you're reading the Gospels is, whenever you see Jesus and the Pharisees in the same encounter, ask yourself, who am I most like in this story? Am I acting more like Pharisees or am I acting more like Jesus? Because what we see in this story and we see it numerous times throughout the Gospels. 
Pharisees, they didn't have a category for hanging out with people like the likes of Matthew. So this line, I've come to call them to repentance. This is very important. And I'm just going to give you a little side note. Ready? This is free. You don't have to put anything in the offering plate for this. Can we be really honest about something? There's a lot of talk these days. You see it from politicians and celebrities and like social media influencers. You see it in advertising and commercials. We're reading a lot about the fact that Jesus was love and he loved everybody. And these same people will say, I mean, just look at Jesus in the Gospels. He, he hung out with prostitutes and he hung out with criminals and he hung out. I mean, do you know anything about like Matthew, Jesus? Jesus went to his house and had dinner. And oftentimes these examples of Jesus interacting with these types of people is now being used as a way of condoning and rationalizing and excusing behavior that is far afield from what Christ calls us to. And we use these stories, some people will use these stories as a way of applauding and approving behavior that's inconsistent with God's will. But what they do is they ignore this last line of the passage is that Jesus said, I've come to call sinners to a different way of life. My hanging out with Matthew and his like was not to approve the life of Matthew. It was not to affirm and applaud Matthew's ethics. I came to develop a relationship with Matthew so that I could beckon him, invite him, call him to something different. Does that make sense? So... In this account, what we need to learn is that Matthew was the most unlikely candidate to become a disciple of Jesus. And yet that's the person that Jesus chose and invited to be a disciple. Does that make sense? So if we are the, if we are the sinner in the story... That means we are the most unlikely candidates for Jesus to invite us to be one of his disciples. So, here's what I want us to understand. It doesn't matter how far from God you are, Jesus loves you and calls you to repentance. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus loves you. Like he really, really loves you. And he calls you to repentance. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. Jesus loves you. And calls you to repentance. It doesn't matter how society labels you. And boy, does society like labeling people these days. 
doesn't matter how society labels you, you should know Jesus loves you and he calls you to repentance. Now, I'm going to share a truth with you. It's not original to me. This has been around for years. In fact, it, it's used so often it's become a bit trite. But it's not trite. It's incredibly true. You ready? Jesus loves you too much to leave you where he found you. Jesus loved Matthew too much to leave him in a life full of corruption and deceit and stealing and cheating. A life of isolation and rejection and loneliness because of the lifestyle that he chose. Jesus saw Matthew and the, the devastating impact of sin in his life and said, Oh, Matthew, there's such a better way. So I'm, in, I'm inviting you, come, come follow me. Come learn a new way of life, a different way of doing things. When Jesus finds us in our sin, his love determines that's no place to stay. That's unhealthy. That's destructive. That will not bring you the joy, the peace, the hope, the intimacy that you're longing for, but you're pursuing in all the wrong ways. He loves you too much to leave you where he found you. Does that make sense? That's why all through the Bible, we see this theme of change. We see this theme of growth. We see this theme of becoming something that we're not originally. Through the power of Christ and the work of the gospel, we see this theme of, of being different. These are just a couple of verses, and again, I, just a couple. I could back up a truck and unload dozens of them. John tells us, to all who received Jesus, invited Jesus into their life, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to start living a whole different identity, to become something as we grow and, and experience a relationship with Jesus, a life that looks like change. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, anyone has a relationship with Jesus, the new creation has come. The old, it's gone now. The new is here. Jesus is inviting you into something new and different and better. 1 Corinthians, these are strong words the apostle Paul writes. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you not, do not be deceived. Don't let anybody yank you around and tell you differently. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul writes this, and that is what some of you were. That used to be the road you traveled. That was the life that you lived. 
but you learned of Jesus, the work of the cross, the resurrection and the power, and that's what you were. But through Jesus, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes, the, the objective is that all of us would reach unity in the faith, our understanding of Christ, our knowledge of the Son of God, that we might become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, growing up to a place where our life starts to reflect Jesus. Then, then we'll no longer be infants, making really uh, immature choices and decisions, Instead, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, and that's Christ. Later in this book, Paul writes this, so I tell you this, in fact, I insist on it, this is very important, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That's people going in this direction in the futility of their thinking. This, hey, everybody approves this way of life. This is the popular choice that most people are making. I'm going to live. He says, no, that's the futility of thinking that's wrong. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Put off that old behavior, that old self, that old identity which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And in exchange, be made new in the attitudes of your minds. and Put on a new identity, a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This theme runs all through the, Old, the New Testament. We've been saying it this way for years here at Sibylla Creek. Living things grow and growing things change. You want to know if your conversion of faith in Jesus Christ is, is legitimate? That it was real and authentic? Is you'll begin to grow because you were born again. You've come alive. Living things grow. Children, if they're alive, they grow. I remember when my boys were like 12 and 13. It seemed like they'd come out of their bedroom in the morning. They were different than when they went to bed that night. It's just like they were growing so fast. Why? Living things grow and growing things change. A seed, it grows, just a little sprout. And then over time, it changes as it becomes a flower or a fruit. Well, if we're born again, if our, if our conversion to Christ is legitimate, we should expect that we'd be growing and, and changing. How? Well, the... Changing in your beliefs. So many people before Christ, they, they live in a set of beliefs and they're going, this is okay, this is all right and I get to determine my fate and this isn't going to be a problem. Those are deeply held beliefs and Jesus said, no, no, see, you're darkened in your understanding. 
You need to hear the truth and you need to change what you believe. Your values, the things that you think are really important in life, they have to change your whole life in this direction. I value these things. I value wealth and all it can buy. I value like people's approval. I value success and ambition. He says, there's no life there. It's a lie. What you're longing for is found in a relationship with Christ. And if your values change, your priorities are going to change how you distribute your time, how you distribute your money, how you distribute your energy. You should see change there. Attitudes, behaviors, habits. Does this make sense? So Jesus chose his disciples from a group of incredibly average individuals with very unimpressive qualifications to be his disciples. So much so that the religious bigwigs of the day were left scratching their head like, what is he doing? Well, what he's doing is he's loving people so much that he can't bear to leave them where he finds them. And Matthew was at the top of the list of the most (laughs) unlikely candidates to become a disciple of Jesus, and yet Jesus chose him. He saw something in him, as unlikely as it seemed, Jesus saw something in Matthew. He said, I can redeem that, I can change that, I I can transform that man's life set him on an entirely different trajectory of what his life will be about. And Matthew, that tax collector, he'd end up writing an account of the life of Jesus, one of four that was selected to tell the story of Jesus for time and memorial. And to this day, the story of Matthew Next to Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. That former tax collector has been leading hundreds of thousands of people to Jesus Christ throughout every century of history. That's the work that the gospel that Jesus can do in the life of a person who will be willing to repent of the direction they're going to follow Jesus. So I'll leave you with this. In a relationship with Jesus, which is what we're exploring. In a relationship with Jesus, you'll be challenged to become the person you never thought you could be. This is not just a bus ticket to heaven. Jesus is inviting you for your life to change. You will be challenged to become the person you never thought you could be by the God who always knew you would be. Because he sees you for who he created you to be. Does that make sense? That's what it's like to be in a relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you to stand together. Let me pray for us. Again, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I'd love to make your acquaintance. I'll be here at the front of the auditorium if you want to.
talk or just come up and introduce yourself. Father, thank you for your encounter with Matthew. The most unlikely person in all the stories of the Gospels. The most unlikely candidate to be one of Jesus' disciples. God, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, the power of this story would just grip our hearts and our minds. That we'd find ourselves in the story that we too are unlikely candidates. But Jesus sees something in us. And I pray, Father, I pray for the person in this room right now listening to my voice who continues to reject and reject, uh, resist Jesus and his influence in their life. I pray, Father, that you be at work in their hearts and bring them to a place of repentance. To change their mind. To give their heart to Christ. I pray, Father, for Christians in this room who are right now resisting the work of your Holy Spirit in their hearts by pursuing something they know to be wrong. I pray, Father, you'll bring them to repentance. God, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for the hope that you offer that you see in us what we cannot see. And you invite us to the change that you offer through the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ in our life. May it be true here at Civil Creek that living things grow and growing things change. I pray and ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.